Mr Speaker, we are going to leave the European Union in March 2019. The clock is ticking, and the closer we get to March 2019, the more Brexit is dominating the news agenda. I have just to say to people watching this programme that I asked this audience what they, whether they wanted this subject discussed this week, <laughs> and I have to say 75% of them said they didn't want it discussed, and yet the biggest pile of questions we had was on this very subject. <laughs> But with all the talk of the single market, impact assessments and trade deals, it sometimes feels as if this debate is only happening in the comment pages of newspapers or the corridors of Westminster. It's so important, I think, that the democratic will of the people is implemented. People are sort of being painted this sort of vision rather than a hard or soft Brexit. It's a cake-and-eat-it Brexit. It's a total fantasy. Are we in danger of forgetting the most important thing? When it comes to Brexit, what happened to the people? Welcome to a special episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast. My name's Aisha Thomas-Smith, and I'll be back next week with a new series with lots of very special guests. But for now, we thought we'd share a discussion we recorded live in London at the end of 2017 between political theorist Morris Glassman, activist Ruth Ibegbuna, and the academic Rob Ford. The question we put to them was, where are the people in the Brexit debate? Our host for the event was the journalist Mary Riddell. Over to her. I'm absolutely delighted to be here and to be part of an event that'll look specifically at the impact of Brexit on people's lives and attitudes. Um, Brexit overshadows so much at the moment, and yet actually it's fairly rare that you, you get a forum where uh, the effects can be debated, as I'm sure they will be tonight. Uh, it's a truism now that the Brexit vote was a revolt against the established order and those in charge. Um, less acknowledged, I think, is the paradox uh, that people arguably trusted some politicians uh, too much rather than too little. The idea, for example, that we take back control of £350 million a week for the NHS, uh, that advantageous trade deals would be simple to procure, have been gradually unravelling over the past 18 months since the vote. And so too, at the same time, have people's livelihoods. Incomes are stagnating at the same time as inequality is rising. Frequently over the last decades, you've had one or the other, but to have both at the same time is, I think, unprecedented uh, and obviously a very dangerous cocktail. So we're here tonight to look at uh, what people are really thinking now. Have politicians been too eager to bow to the much-vaunted democratic will? Uh, and in so doing, have they shirked their public duty uh, to spell out the realities and the risks of Brexit? Uh, here to discuss those issues... Uh, we've got a fantastic expert panel. Uh, I'm going to introduce them in the order uh, in which they'll speak tonight. So to my far right is uh, Rob Ford, Professor of Political Science at the University of Manchester. He co-authored uh, Revolt on the Right, uh, which many of you will have read, and his research focuses on uh, electoral choice and public opinion. Uh, next, next to me, Ruth Ibegbuna, uh, who is the founder and CEO of the youth intervention project Reclaim. Uh, she's a renowned national and international peace activist and changemaker. 
And uh, last but not least, uh, Maurice Glassman, Lord Glassman, Labour peer, political theorist, longtime stalwart of London citizens, uh, the founder of Blue Labour and much else besides. Uh, I'm going to ask them all if they'd speak for roughly 10 minutes. So, Rob, could I ask you to, to begin? Uh, thank you, Mary. Um, so, yes, I uh, wrote a book on UKIP a few years ago, um, back when Brexit seemed like a pretty unlikely thing. And I'm now at the early stages of writing a new book about what uh, I think the politics of Brexit means and the kind of the deeper divides that I think it's it's exposed and which I don't think will go away after Brexit ends. Um, but that's a that's a bigger brief than ten minutes can cover. Um, what I'm going to do now is just lay out some of the some of what I can see in public opinion so far, and what I think might be some of the likely uh, or possible plausible changes in how the public sees this process going forward. So, in terms of what's changed so far since, say, um, referendum day. Um, well, firstly, um, we've seen a steadily mounting uh, negativity uh, in the public about how the government uh, is conducting uh, the negotiation process and in um, their perceptions of what sort of a deal uh, we will get. Uh, so the proportion of people who say they disapprove of the job the government's doing about negotiating Brexit is steadily rising. The proportion of people who say that the government's going to secure us a good deal is steadily falling. Uh, it's important to bear in mind, though, that that kind of grim trend tends to happen to every government on more or less every issue. Uh, as Enoch Powell observed, all political careers end in failure. And when it comes to public opinion trends, that's very evident most of the time. Um, so while the public certainly think the government is failing, whether they think the government is failing more than they usually do is a trickier question to answer. Um, the second thing we can see in the data is some increase in polarisation about how people think Brexit will affect the country. And the movement on this seems to be largely on the Remain side. There was a big chunk of the people who voted Remain who didn't think the effects of Brexit would be too negative in the immediate aftermath of the vote. They have tended to drift towards a more pessimistic view of the outcome, whereas Leave voters remain at this stage pretty optimistic about what they think the effects of Brexit will be. They tend to sort of divide between people who think it won't have any big effect at all and people who think it will be really, really good for the country. Um, there's also some interesting trends when you break it down by particular uh, effects, and particularly on the economy, we see this polarisation. Indeed, the day after the vote on Brexit, Remain voters became a great deal more pessimistic about the state of the British economy and how it was going to be going forward. And Leave voters, who had previously been amongst the nation's most pessimistic um, economists uh, became a great deal more optimistic uh, and that polarisation has survived and that again is something we see often in politics for example the day after Donald Trump got elected Republican voters who had previously been firmly convinced that America was in the midst of a recession decided that the recession was over and the good times had arrived Democrats went in the opposite direction now while there are trends beneath the surface there in terms of judgments about Brexit and its effects. What there isn't evidence of, though one reads every week articles about this, uh, much like the man in the desert searching for the oasis, people keep seeing it, but it's not quite there yet. There's no real evidence of a substantial shift in the overall balance of opinion. We remain, in essence, a 50-50 nation 
over this issue. And for reasons I'm going to come on to in a second, I really don't think that's going to change either. Uh, we're not in, certainly not before Brexit becomes a reality, are we going to see any shift towards a clear majority one way or the other on this issue. Now, what might change going forward? Um, well, speculation is a dangerous game. I know this is someone who said I didn't think Brexit was particularly likely and that I didn't think Trump's election was particularly likely either. So uh, I want to caveat all of this quite heavily. But based on what we've seen in the past... Uh, with political events, big disruptive political events like Brexit. The first thing we can expect is that on the whole, if things go wrong at the macro level, if we get economic disruption, if we get inconvenience, disadvantage, if we get changes in prices, greater uncertainty, the housing market slows down, people tend to dump the blame for that stuff on the government. The only situation in which they don't dump the blame on the government and hence become more negative about the government is if there's some very plausible alternative explanation out there that might explain why not me, Gov, is a fair enough defence. So a lot of Labour voters in 2010, for example, stuck with Labour in part because they genuinely bought the argument that it really wasn't Labour's fault, it was a global financial crisis. But this government has pretty much stuck the badge of Brexit proudly onto itself, so it'll be a much harder trick uh, for them to pull off. I suppose they could try blaming it on the Europeans. I don't think that's likely to be particularly effective. So I do think that if there is major disruption later in the Brexit process, that is going to be bad news for voters' views of the government. The second area where we have already seen considerable change, actually, and where I expect that change to continue is on immigration attitudes. And here the story is actually rather surprising. People in Britain, both Leavers and Remainers, have become more positive about immigration since the vote to leave the European Union. They have become less concerned about immigration as a political issue. They have been, become more convinced of the economic case for migration and of the cultural case for migration. They have more positive emotions about migration and migrants. This wasn't really what everybody expected um, after the vote to leave. And it's an interesting puzzle to try and unpick in terms of what's driving it. I suspect there's at least two factors involved. One is that for people on the pro-migration side, they've suddenly become more aware of the fact that aspects of social change in Britain that they approve of are now being threatened. So they've rallied to defend things like migration, openness and diversity, whereas before they kind of took them a bit for granted. The other thing is that the mantra of control on the Leave side really was an important aspect of the psychology of Leave voters. So the belief that control is on its way seems to have produced a more general, the generous outlook with regards to migrants. I don't think either of those things is likely to change. Um, for several reasons. One is that this more liberal shift in attitudes is actually part of a longer-running trend. Uh, if you look at data going back to the early 2000s, the British have become steadily more positive on average about migration since about probably... The data we have goes back to 2002, so certainly since then. 
But at the same time, we've seen increasing social polarisation in that period. So the positive bits of the public became more positive. The negative bits often became more negative uh, as well. But the net change tends to be in a positive direction. There's some structural reasons for that. We're becoming a more diverse society. The, the number of university graduates in the electorate goes up uh, all the time. The share of the population with migrant or ethnic minority heritage goes up all the time. Those things tend to pull attitudes in a more liberal direction, and none of them is going to change as a result of Brexit uh, very much. We're also removing what is in many respects one of the most contentious elements of the migration debate since 2004, or at least if, the, if Brexit proceeds along the terms defined by the current government, we will be, which is freedom of movement. The truth of the matter is that the public are relatively pragmatic when it comes to migration if it is framed in terms of we get to choose who comes as in when it's a privileges-type framing, that we as a country choose who comes, you actually get pretty strong support for many streams of migration. When migration is framed in a rights-based term, terms, in terms of Europeans have the right to come here and we just have to deal with that, voters, particularly on the Leave side, tend to object to that because they don't regard that as a right that migrants across the whole of Europe should legitimately have been granted. That was a problem with the migration debate all the way through the period prior to Brexit. If freedom of movement ceases to be a thing that we have as part of our migration system, it removes one of the major problematic elements in debating that issue going forward. In terms of that's an issue over which people divide very strongly and where sort of, you know, pragmatic 50-50 solutions are very hard to, to offer. You either have a right to come or you don't. Um, and people divide and polarise on that. If that right isn't on the table, then it's rather different. Finally, a more sort of um, uh, banal element, but important, the numbers have dropped. There are various reasons for that. Um, given the uncertainty about coming to Britain, they're not likely to come back up very soon. And one of the things we do see is that the, the salience of immigration on the political agenda tracks the numbers quite closely. So that's likely to continue. The final thing I think we are likely to see during and after Brexit is further polarisation in uh, public attitudes, both about Brexit but also more broadly. I think it's very important to remember that the vote for Brexit was not just about our relationship with the European Union. Uh, it reflected fundamental differences in identity, in outlook and in values um, between people who were more open and socially liberal and cosmopolitan and people who were more localised and nationalistic uh, and um, socially conservative. Now, Brexit has catalyzed the mobilisation of those value divisions into our politics. I don't think any of them will be going away afterwards. And indeed, it's likely that they will deepen. So Leave voters are going to find that the expectations they have about what Brexit will deliver are essentially unmeetable. And there will be a politics of disappointment on that side. And managing that disappointment will be an important political task for politicians, regardless of their views on Brexit. Because the danger is disappointment turns to disaffection, turns to hostility. On the Remain side, you're going to have a politics of unwanted and disruptive change, a politics of change imposed against one's will on a segment of the electorate that isn't used to having change that it didn't want opposed against its will. That will also be a difficult thing to manage and a difficult thing uh, to address. So those, to, to sum up, and I'm just about 
11 minutes, so not too bad. Um, To sum up, the two big challenges I see going forward for those working on the politics of Brexit in its aftermath, first of all, to deal with those immediate reactions to the process, disappointment on one side and disenchantment, uh, opposition to change on the uh, other side. And secondly, the the focus will eventually um, return to domestic politics. At some point... Um, God willing, we will stop talking uh, about the various minutiae of trade and and Irish borders and um, migration regimes and Mr Barnier and all of these things. And we will get back to the issues of domestic British politics. And when we do, those underlying divides in outlook, identity and values will still be there. uh, And we will have to think very hard about how we're going to address them because they split They don't just split the public deeply, they split the parties deeply, and they split both parties deeply and internally. Labour was very aware um, that voters on the Leave side presented them with a problem going into the 2017 uh, election. They managed to find a solution to that problem that worked in June. Whether it can continue to work is harder to say. Um, The Conservatives discovered that wholeheartedly embracing one side of those value divides came at a big cost on the other side of those value divides. Uh, that a message that might resonate in some of the post-industrial towns of the Midlands and the North is really alienating to people in Canterbury uh, or Kensington. So both parties have got some difficult questions to ask, and Brexit taking up all the air in the room delays the asking of those questions, but that reckoning will have to come. Thank you very much indeed. Just to, to clarify, Rob, the, that politics of disappointment, which presumably is evident even now as people's living standards do get worse and inflation rises and so on, and people presumably will notice over Christmas that everything's costing more and and so on. I mean, is that at all evident in people's views of, of Brexit? Do they link the two? And when the politics of disappointment, or if it really does kick in, as you suggest, will that disappointment be turned against Brexit itself, or will it all be focused on the government uh, responsible for bringing it in? Um, well, they're, they're very good questions. And, and, and to be honest, at, the, at present, the answer depends upon which segments of the public you're looking at. Um, so Remain voters already tend to blame Brexit for a more pessimistic economic outlook for rises in prices and so on. But Leave voters, who are often much poorer um, and often facing you know, the brunt of those kind of things like falling real incomes, rising prices and so on, do not at present seem to be attaching the blame for that on Brexit. It's worth recalling that in the 2017 election, one of the most staggering statistics to me was the bigger the fall in local incomes uh, in the year after Brexit, the better the Conservatives did. It was the opposite of the kind of accountability one would expect following austerity politics. It seemed that people were doubling down on the idea that, you know, we're going to have to pay a price for this in the short term, but it's worth it for the sunny uplands that will come. But at some point they'll realise the sunny uplands aren't coming. And that's when you come to the second question. It's impossible to know for sure, but what we've seen in the past is that the government, if it's strongly associated with a particular policy, tends to take the lion's share of the blame. So that's the likeliest outcome. It's not the only outcome, of course. Some resurgent UKIP-type political force could emerge and say that it was the, it was the Europeans who undermined the whole thing and they're to blame, and that, that could appeal. Uh, you can never rule that possibility out, but I'd say, you know, I'd be sweating a lot more if, if I was the government. I would think you're not going to be find it very easy to shift the blame away for this. 
Thank you very much. Ruth? Um, well, I am not an academic, um, and I am, am here really to talk about the fact that I work with working-class young people in Manchester and in South Wales, and um, we work with them on ending leadership inequality. And one of the things that happens to me, because I come to London at least once every week, is I'm kind of shouted at and told to go and tell them in London about this and that. And usually it's about Brexit. So when I was invited, I felt I couldn't really turn down the opportunity. Um, I think the most important thing to say, first of all, is that I live a very strange life in that I have a couple of days in London, then I go back and I'm, I'm working with the young people up north. And because of those two things, I'm very, very interested in the, I think, the polarisation that you're talking about and the fact that I think there's some deeply entrenched differences happening. Um, and I'm only talking from a northern perspective, but I think there's some interesting things for us to unpick. And to just go back to Brexit Day, um, I lived at the time in a, in a pretty poor area of Stockport. And I went to bed, probably like you, pretty confident of the result in the morning. And I was woken up by my neighbour who was just jubilant and drunk, um, <laughs> shouting about Happy Independence Day. And the men of the street were congering down the street with delight at the Brexit result. And the reason I'm sharing that is because I, I don't know how many people in this room also lived in streets like that, where it was literally like a, a street party of delight. And that street is still delighted about the Brexit vote. No matter how negative the news is or the forecasts are, we are taking back control. And that's all you get. And they're still talking about Independence Day. And it's very hard to argue and reason with that because that's a really emotional feeling. Um, but I think there's a big distinction between that feeling and a lot of what maybe people are feeling in this room here. Um, and I was speaking maybe a month after Brexit about the feelings of the people on my road. And in a space in London, it was a business space um, with a lot of kind of moneyed London people there. And I was, I was heckled from the floor um, about stupid northerners. Um, and some people are too stupid to vote. And, and that really took me by surprise. Um, you know, A, I voted Remain, but also the fact that, that that feeling was so strong. And I think that what that came through to me was the fact that we have got this divide here that, that we're not bridging, we're not moving together, and both sides are kind of entrenched now, with one side saying, we now have evidence that we were right, and the other side saying, you're ruining all of this for us, and we still believe this is the right thing to do. I think one thing that often comes through when I talk to people in the North is the fact that they believe that the levers that are depicted in the debates are always those who are least articulate, always those who are going to show um, a racist view, always those people who are going to have viewpoints that it's easy to dismiss. Um, and I was at a dinner party in Northamptonshire recently, very, very rich rural Northamptonshire, and everyone around that table had voted Brexit. Everyone. And I th think pretty much most of the people in that room were millionaires. Yet you don't get many Channel 4 levers, exposes, talking to those people in Northamptonshire. And I think it's pretty important that we don't have a stereotyped version of what a lever and a remainer is, because I think that, that helps to um, reinforce the feelings of resentment that are really growing over this. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was what our young people are seeing. I work with young people and teenagers in a charity. And for our young people, they, they watch that election and they've watched what's happened subsequently. And they're absolutely disillusioned. Um, whether or not they would have voted leave or remain, our young people just feel that the politics they're seeing on show is making them feel so dispirited for their future. 
they're talking about the fact that they just can't believe that the debates that are being had are not hopeful. Our young people talked about the fact that they wanted British politics, I've written it here, to be more bold, ethical and hopeful, and that's what they wanted for all the debates through Brexit. They said whether or not it ever happens or not, we should be aiming to be more hopeful about the whole thing. I just think that also, I work in South Wales, and I'm now started to work in a valley in South Wales, and one of those valleys has got unemployment at nearly 80%. And they voted Brexit, overwhelmingly. And when I spoke to them about that, because actually, what's in that valley is very little. They've got a community centre and it's got an EU stamp on it. They've got um, a, a community college with money from the European Union. When I spoke to them about why did you vote Brexit, the quote was, look at this place, it's shit, it can't get any worse. And when I was speaking to one of the community organisers in the area, she said to me, we actually thought people might start giving a shit after Brexit. We thought they'd come and find out why we voted Brexit. She went, and no one's ever come. So the anger's almost double there. It's almost like life is so difficult, and yet people don't care enough to try and unpick why they voted that way. And that's the thing that really drives me, I think. I just think that we work with a lot of communities that for reasons that may feel unfathomable to some people, have voted a certain way. And yet the media, the news is not following their stories, it's not listening to them, it's not asking them why, it's not stepping into their footsteps. In this country, we don't do very well with talking about difficult issues. You know, I've, I run a charity that talks about class and the discomfort that that brings to a room, you mean, for goodness sake. Um, but the other thing that we struggle with is talking about immigration. And it's so easy to talk about the fact that, you know, leavers talk about immigration, um, and then when it veers into racism, we shut it down. We immediately shut it down. And I feel very, very strongly that what we need to do is surface a lot more of that and deal with it. Because, because it makes people uncomfortable, we're not listening, we're, we're, they're shutting people down, and they're turning to far right, and then we're, we're dealing with a whole different world of problems. I was talking to my friend recently about the fact that I grew up in Bradford, and when I grew up, I grew up in Bradford and I had friends who were Pakistani who faced awful racism, just awful. That was the way Bradford was. Some of those children went through hell. Those children are now doctors, MPs, councillors. They live in the nicer parts of Bradford. Their families saved for them. And the rest of Bradford, especially white Bradford, is looking and going, what the hell happened here? And they're angry and they're resentful and they voted that way. They're conversations that need to be had. They're difficult conversations for Britain to have about why some people feel left behind. And that is why people feel so entrenched in, I know I voted for Brexit, I know the economy looks like it's going to be screwed and I still don't care. And it just feels to me that the work that needs to happen now in this period is all about the things that Britain are not very good at. So talking about kind of... Um, integration, it takes time, it takes courage, it takes honesty, it takes surfacing things, it takes allowing, it takes sometimes allowing some races to speak and debating with them intelligently. You know, if they put the right people up against the Farages of this world, we might not be in the situation we're in now. So that's kind of my end of my thing that I wanted to say, and it's a bit of a plea as well, which is to follow those people who voted a way that may seem <laughs> unintelligible to some people to find out why and to work with them to find solutions for their lives because not all leavers are poor no but 
a lot of leavers are very poor and struggling and their lives are about to get much worse. And I think when their lives do get worse, the backlash that will be felt will be severe for the whole country. Thank you. Thank you. That was really fascinating, and it's so it it, it, it is really uh, not heartening. That's that's not the right word, but very illuminating to hear, you know, what's actually going on. The the story about the celebration party in the weeks mm. after it does seem, you know, almost in another land. I think to a lot of people in London. But I was going to ask you, just do you feel at all? This is about people, not primarily about politics at all. But do you feel that politicians have abrogated the duty to surface issues, to talk about them, to confront the truths, if you like, of Brexit, as well as uh, what people are really like and the problems they're facing? At least you could argue with the government, uh, they've sort of put their money or our money where their mouth is and, and they've nailed their colours to the, to the mast. Whereas Labour has really run quite an equivocal line on Brexit so far. That may change, I guess, but they haven't really surfaced any of the issues. And I wondered how that looked, whether you agreed and mm. how that looked from your perspective. Well, I think speaking from the perspective of the, the families that I work with, they feel that the politicians are running scared from what they've got to say. They feel that no one wants to listen to what they've got to say about their lives, about the fact that communities have changed without us able to get their permission for their communities to change. I think that what I hear from a lot of our families is a lot of fear, resentment, but also fear about the fact that communities are changing and they're being given no help. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I use that example of Bradford because... Actually, for, for those, I'm sure for those white communities, when that community changed within a generation, with no help from MPs and government to know how to cope with the, the, the changing, shifting demographics, that's, that's particularly hard. And I think politicians are spectacularly bad at, at, at surfacing difficult issues that might mean that they're seen in a negative light, so they just ignore them or they call it something else. Um, and I think we've got to a point now, this, this should be one of those points in British history where we go, do you know what, we need to put a full stop and discuss what's really going on in the room. Thank you very much indeed. And very interesting that, that you and Rob, you know, coming from very different backgrounds, both agree that uh, uh, at some point a day of reckoning is coming on all this. So on that apocalyptic note, <laughs> over to you, Maurice Lassman. Thank you. And... Uh... The day of reckoning has, has now arrived, definitely. <laughs> so the, the referendum itself was a very odd experience for me because I used to go up to these uh, Brexit meetings sort of organised in local places, town hall meetings, which were very civil, uh, quite funny uh, and, and really political and democratic. And the overwhelming sense I got, you can imagine it sort of me, they'd say, you don't care about... Us. And then they'd say sometimes, I don't mean you, but I got what they were saying. You don't care about us and you think we're racist and you think we're nationalist, but we're not. It's just that if we don't vote this way, you will never listen to us ever again. So that was the overwhelming sense was if we don't do this, this is like a historic democratic responsibility because it was about that. It was about democracy and accountability and their realisation um, that that the European state that was forming didn't allow you to get rid of people, that it wasn't democratic at all. It was based on a completely different legal and administrative 
and directive set of principles. And because of the sort of cultural peculiarity of, of British Whigs, they thought that the European state that was forming was going to be like the British state, but it, it wasn't. It was a, of a different form. So the first thing I would really say is that the space opened up here is a great space. It's a great political and democratic space. And it's unusual, you know, the, the people you meet. Like, this was the first time when I came in today, I got a pro-Brexit leaflet from the Communist Party of Britain, Marxist-Leninist, and got a smile from them. Uh, and, and the Populist Party too, which looks very interesting indeed, um, as far as I can see. And one of the odd things that happened to me in, in the House of Lords was that someone I didn't know called Robert Salisbury, who's a direct descendant of William Cecil, who negotiated the original Brexit deal, and, you know, in the, in following the Reformation. And he came up to me and said, when was, when was the Reformation? Just to let you know, I, did, I kind of guessed. So I said, about 1537, he said, that'll do. And he said, and when was the Armada? And that I knew, 1588. So he said, so you see, Brexit took 50 years last time. And I just advise everybody here to realise that this is a long-term change. This is going to go... And it's, of course, the case. I don't think there will be a deal. It's, a, it's, it's that the following the particularly Lisbon, but following Maastricht, but definitely Lisbon, these four freedoms, the freedom of movement of people, of money, of services, um, and of goods, is non-negotiable within that. So just to say, Mary, in response to the kind of questions you've been pushing, the overwhelming sense I've got during the referendum and since is that this isn't about money. And it's very difficult for politicians to realise that this is about preserving an inheritance of democratic self-government. Um, that was being eroded and left people in a position of powerlessness and abandonment. That's the way I, I understand it. And the best way that I understand it is that people did make a distinction between, um, you know, this horrible word, but it's, it's 10 to 7, so I can use it, this idea of commodification. This is this idea that turning human beings and nature into commodities, and people don't like it, they... They don't like it, and they make a distinction between uh, free market and real commodities, such as this microphone or this table, and human beings and nature. And I think that what was deep down in all of this is that they wanted some democratic protection of human beings um, and our natural environment. So, Rob, I don't think that the, the disappointment um, is going to be material. I don't think it's going to work out that way. It, it's It's much more if everything remains remains the same, the domination of capital, of, of capitalism. That's what I think, this opens up a space. Essentially, given the treaty, the treaty system and the way that it worked through every national parliament that they accepted the subordination of democracy to capital, I think that's that's the issue and it opens. So, so the big issues that confront us now with Brexit and the people is whether we are articulating the renewal of society through democracy and the resistance to the domination of capital through our politics. And um, I take comfort in Lord Salisbury's 
you know, advice that it took 50 years last time, because as it stands, that's what I think NEF has got to do, is a bold vision of the renewal of the seaside towns, the renewal of the counties, the renewal of the cities, a decentralised democracy that would have been resistance to the domination of large corporations, which would have been illegal under the prevailing system um, that was certainly institutionalised um, after Lisbon, regional banks. I don't know people here, the, the last election, because I'm a bit older, it reminded me of like nutty 1970s elections, you know, the Conservatives talking about industrial policy, Labour talking about nationalisation. It was like everybody had been let off the leash and could have a huge party, you know. But I think that that the, the, the sobering up is there's going to have to be institutional renewal, I think, regional banks, so that people, are, because there's been a massive concentration of capital in London and the decimation um, of the financial institutions um, of the regions. I think we have to look at vocation and vocational training as, as, as a hugely important um, aspect of the renewal, but also the establishment of genuine um, city democracy and counties and, and some democratic accountability. People wanted it. So, Ruth, I'm really interested, when I talk to people, they can get quite excited about democracy uh, and, and doing that, but only where there's a, a vision of that. So I think the task before us, certainly speaking from the Labour side, is to embrace the possibility, democratic possibilities of the present moment, be bold in the extension of democracy, not to be afraid of capitalism and really challenging the way that... Because, you know, we've got to in my view, certainly my experience, is that you got to the position that when you um, challenged um, capitalism, everybody thought that capitalism would run away. Like they, they've got the idea, they thought that capitalism was like the weak, the weak pupil in the playground who needed support from staff in an anti-bullying policy. When capital is the bully, you know, they're not going to run away, they're going to fight for themselves. So there needs to be... It, it's not just about immigration that we need to have the conversation, but about the way that the economy has functioned um, for a small elite, the way that that needs to be redistributed in terms of class and in terms of place. Yeah, that, that the, the geography of this is, is vital. When I, work, when I worked with John Crudders on the last manifesto, we, did, you know, we weren't allowed to do that much, so we did a... We just asked people where they lived, and, and, well, and the majority of people we spoke to didn't think they lived. Nobody that we spoke to thought they lived in Medway or Humberside or North Yorkshire or South, whatever it was, West Midlands. People still held that they lived in these counties, in these places, in these towns, and that they felt that they were powerless in those places. So a renewal of city democracy, renewal of the counties of... I'm developing this idea of the parish commune, you know, of, of a local assembly that can decide issues relating to housing, relating to education. So to seize this moment as a moment of democratic renewal and, and to accept that the political class and the ruling class have no vision of where this goes and that that's the job in front of us, is a job of the democratic imagination. And to reiterate the point I made earlier to Mary, that it, it's just... I've got told this all the time, and I believe it, that it's, we keep on thinking, oh, well, this is going to change when people get poorer. I witnessed events sort of in Sunderland 
at the Nissan plant where the bosses, the unions, the MPs were all imploring the workforce. And the work, it was just like for me being at school because the whole workforce was laughing. And I had to ask them why they were laughing. You know, what, they, they said they just don't, they just don't get it. They just don't get it at all that they'll never listen to us again. So what I'm urging is um, some real effort in imagining a democratic political future that can come out of this rather than a politics of polarisation um, against people who have, in fact, saved our democratic inheritance. Thank you. So, Morris, thank you very, very much for that. And I completely accept your point on commodification. And, you know, if it was about money, then yep. clearly the people in the in fishing communities would be would have voted uh, or be thinking a different way. But I just wonder if you would also accept that your um, your your vast um, how did you put it very well your vast your great political and democratic space sort of one man's vast democratic space is another person's. Uh, rather dangerous vacuum and that although I absolutely concur with your, all the ideas you've put forward actually there is very precious little evidence there really isn't any sign that, that, that people are stepping up to the mark in fact you know there's lots of evidence that capitalism is not only sort of uh, not running away, but actually is getting more powerful people are rich people are getting richer poor people are getting poorer and so isn't there really a risk that Brexit won't be the sort of vehicle uh, that you uh, that you hope for? Yeah. So first of all, Brexit's not a vehicle. I think that's sorry, that's, wrong word. No, no, I'm not picking you up in it. It is that it's going to happen and it's going to open up a space where there's a massive political conflict, and that political conflict can be summarised as one between what's now called the Singapore model, you know, low tax, deregulated, uh, free trade model. Um, and that's going to be promoted certainly by um, a very powerful wing of the Conservative Party. What's at issue is what's ours? Where, where is the space for the participation of the workforce, for a, a more productive economy, um, and for a more democratic economy in a more democratic country? So what I'm saying is the space is opening. Now, this gets to the second point, is that is that the big winners, and Rob alluded to it, and I thought you did it really politely, and I've got no obligation to be as polite, that the huge winners of the last 50 years in terms of the political battles have been the educated middle class. We've got the funding for education, we've got the you know, free movement, we've got the cappuccinos, we've got the regeneration, and everything was for the benefit of everybody when it was all for the benefit um, of ourselves. Um, certainly. So this is just to remind us that democracy, there were, there were, the, the fantasy of the, const, the constitutional liberal imagination is the idea that there are guarantees. But politics is dangerous. The one thing is that it, there are winners and losers. My overwhelming sense, I had to pretend, Ruth, on the day after the Brexit vote where I live in Stoke Newington, I had to walk around the streets being formally unhappy. <laughs> to fit in, you know, and you know, I went to the butchers and he slipped me six extra sausages as a sort of subterranean message of, of you know, and I was like, no, no, please, it's, it's, yeah, I understand, because people were in a sense of trauma. When I thought about what they were, is that they've never lost, they've never ever lost, and this was suddenly a reminder that they live with people and in a country where democracy 
um, matters. So, Mary, that sorry to be so long, but it's really important is that now we've got democratic renewal. We're back. The vote was high. The two-party system is back. You know, there's there's democratic renewal. People are in this room um, on a on a quite cold Tuesday evening. So. Um, Things, things matter again, and it can go well or it can go badly. What's important is that democracy is, is, is risky and there are no... and you can lose. So, look, I know that there are loads of points that haven't been made, discussions that'll carry on in this room, outside this room. I mean, what I take away from this, things I hadn't really thought about before, were the, uh, the, the human qualities that have been debated tonight. So humility, hope, empathy. There's a vast range of opinions on this, but those are perhaps qualities around which everyone can gather and which may in the end, in, in the current bleak or uncertain climate, however you see it, uh, give us all calls one day to uh, conger out of some room like this. But in the meantime, thank you so much for being here on this cold evening. Thank you to the fantastic panel, to the organisers. Uh, I wish you all uh, a very good evening and thank you very much again. So, I hope you enjoyed that. Once again, we're back as normal next week. But before I go, I want to give a big shout out to all the people who donated to our recent cab fare appeal, Ness project to build an ethical driver-owned alternative to Uber. In the last few months, staff from Neff have been meeting with drivers, passengers and union leaders to feed into the project, and they've been researching the successes and challenges faced by some of Uber's ethical competitors in other countries. A business plan is being put together, tech partners are being approached, and last month a NEF poll revealed that 82% of Uber customers would use an alternative platform if it offered better rights for drivers. So thank you again to everyone who donated to the Cab Fair project and made that work possible. In particular, a big shout out to these founding supporters. BNA, David Williams, Nick Appleyard, Roger DeFreitas, Roger Worldman, David Thomas, Hiroyuki Takayama, Reich Michael Menschausen, Brian McCorran, Paolo Mendonca, Reinhard Huss, Gaynor Lord, Richard Knoll, Teresa Smart, Footprint, Workers Cooperative, Andy May, Sam Tolland, Richard Wrigley, Jenny Hodgson, Andrew Turnbull, Jenna Hutchins, Clanworted Community Transport, Salisbury Jones Planning, Jean Nunn Price, and some of us. I can only apologise for the fact that I probably butchered 50% of those names. Thanks again, everybody, and see you next week.